This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Jack and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to Karen Barkey, who is safely indoors in Glasgow, I think. Is that right, Karen? That's correct. I'm in the the wilds of the east end of Glasgow in my lovely house looking out at my garden and I've got the sun currently beaming onto my back through the window in the room that I'm in, which is very nice. Actually, I'm enjoying today. It's a lovely day. Lovely. How bucolic. Now, the video link I sent you was for episode one of Neverwhere, which was first shown on BBC Two on the 12th of September, 1996. Now, before you'd even watched that episode, what was your reaction to that choice? Um... I was genuinely really interested because I know of Neverwhere, but I didn't understand mm-hmm. where it had come from. Um, I'm aware of it because uh, Dirk Mags did a radio version of it. This is BBC Radio 4. It starts with doors. I watch out for doors if I were you. Right, great. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Episode one, London Below. Um, yes. And I assumed, like most other Neil Gaiman things, that it had started as a book and then become a radio and then become a television. And it turns out that it's completely back to front. <laughs> so um, I was initially really excited about it because I love Neil Gaiman. Um, I think his his books are fantastic. So... Yeah, so I was really excited about it. I was really keen and I was really looking forward to it. I, I, I'm sensing an unspoken but. There's a little bit of in, a but, in yeah. The way that you, yeah. In the way that you've described this. So anyway, okay. So for people who haven't watched this episode, can you talk us through what happens? Well, I'll try. <laughs> episode one of Neverwhere sets up the the leading character who is a Scottish man called... Just say who I am, OK? Uh, my name's Richard Mayhew. Richard works in an unspecified sort of an office where there's lots of very late 80s, early 90s yuppies and he has got a, a fiancé who is terribly polished and wants him to really be successful financially and at some point he encounters a, a girl called... And you are... Doreen. I'm Dor. And Dor has been seriously injured by some scary men. Well, Mr. Vandermar, she's slowing up. Slowing up, Mr. Crew. She must be losing a lot of blood, Mr. V. Lovely blood, Mr. C. Lovely wet blood. Um, it's not really clear why, and they have some very exciting, possibly even proto-LED lights that they hold at one point. I don't know why. (laughs) And uh they have some weird jewellery. Don't know what that's for. Uh, So they've attacked her. He tries to help her. She's hot. She's bleeding. Richard, we're going to be late. She's hot. Richard. Take me somewhere safe. They'll find me. He's been harassed by 
the scary guys, one of whom is Howl Bennett. A good morrow to you, good sir, on this fine and beautiful day. And what else happens? So, yeah, uh, she gets better. I found you on the street last night, remember? There was, there was rather a lot of blood. Don't worry, most of the blood was someone else's. Really quickly, before she leaves, Richard has helped her out by going to find... Mine, I believe. ...and a very young Patterson Joseph with a very questionable wig. The Carabas, at your service. Yeah, the Marquis is going to help her, and, and she promises a big favour. She just said that she, she'd have to owe you a favour. Exactly what kind of favour? A really big one. She said she'd have to owe you a really big favour. Once she's left, Richard discovers that for some reason no one can remember who he is anymore. He kind of slips out of their memory instantly as soon as he speaks to them. I don't know why everyone's playing that, but if I've been fired, then just tell me that I've been fired. But all this pretending that I'm not here. Hi, I'm Gary Perenna. Can I help you? So he goes off looking for help and speaks to what appears to be a homeless guy in the street who presumably is not simply a homeless guy. I really need help. Please. Okay, I'm sorry I troubled you. Hey! Come on! And then gets taken into London below, which is something different than London above, and then someone tries to stab him in the throat and that's the end of episode one. I think that's a pretty fair description, actually. I think Thank you did a good job of that. <laughs> so the very first thing that we have in the episode, which I think if Me? Neverwhere had been made on TV now, would have probably been someone doing a social media post. But there's this weird yes. three titles, isn't there? With Richard Mayhew and his girlfriend are talking yeah. to camera. Jessica, come on, oh. come and say hi. Richard, hello. What, what do you think, what was the function well, of that, do you think? Yeah, Were you able nice. to work that out? I don't honestly know. I, I... I that they kind of lost me there, which is a worry. I, there was something very old-fashioned about that, which is weird because it was made in the 90s and it felt like a much older show than it was. So there, there's this weird kind of non-specific backdrop that's I presume was supposed to look amazing but looks immensely naff. And him and his fiancée, I, I imagine just to try and cut through the need to explain who everybody is in within dialogue in the opening episode, presumably because they wanted to get to door kind of quickly. So it was a bit of an exposition dump, wasn't it? And of course Neil Gaiman's background prior to this was really more in comics. So to me it was almost as if it was captions, you know, in, in a comic book perhaps. I totally, do you know, I haven't thought about that, but I think you're exactly right. That is what it is. It's the opening, it's the opening page of a comic novella, really, isn't it? A graphic novel. That's exactly what it is. Is that okay? And then we move into the credits, which actually I think are rather more successful, in part because um, they've been designed by Neil Gaiman's creative partner through a lot of his early career, uh, an artist called Dave McKean, who used to do all the covers for Sandman, and he also worked yeah. with him on graphic novels like violent cases and all that sort of stuff and also we've got music by brian eno yeah yeah so that's quite an impressive title sequence the thing that then surprises me when i watched it and i'd completely forgotten about it hello how are you so and i wondered if it surprised you too was to see lenny henry's name in the credits ladies yeah. and gentlemen neil gaiman 
I, as I say, I, I did Wikipedia. That's the only thing I looked at because I wanted to know who the guy was that was playing Richard. Um, and I saw that it was co-produced between Neil Gaiman and Lenny Henry. And a bit of me was going, how did you two cross paths? How did that even come about? How were you hanging out together? Um, and and I, it's, it's odd because I'm not aware of Lenny Henry being that heavily involved in TV production out with things that he's appeared in. Well, he is a big comic book fan. I love comics, and I've been reading them since I was nine. My assumption is it's that, because I think he did... Um, Lenny Henry, I think, might have written some comics back in the day, sort oh. of, uh, after he was famous. But he's... He, yeah, he's definitely a major comic... Yeah, he's a major comics fan. Yeah. So that was my assumption as to, as to why he's there. And I think also, apparently, the um, the idea for Neverwhere actually came from Lenny Henry, not Neil Gaiman. He, he suggested that Neil Gaiman do something about homeless people. Yeah. And so this is what we got off the back of it, so... But it was odd, wasn't it? It is. It's a bit... I mean, it's unfair of me to make assertions because I haven't seen the rest of it, but I felt like it was a half-formed idea that just became indulged. And certainly my sense of it subsequently is it's become a much more fully rounded thing and it works a lot better as a novel and as a radio than it ever did as a TV. And I don't know why that's where they started. Now, you'd said there a bit earlier on that it looked older than... 1996, which is when it was Yay. made. And I wonder if part of the reason was, and I don't know if you clocked this as well, is that um, it's, it's all shot on video, but lived for film. Because I think they were going to, originally they were going to apply a film effect in post-production, Yay. which then never happened. And I wonder if that is the fatal flaw with Neverwhere. What did you think? I think certainly that's that's part of it. it, it looked, I don't know. It just, it looks really cheap. And and these ideas need to look really highly valued, um, yeah. So that that could yeah that very much is is part of it. And I mean, a, a part of me wonders whether or not there would be any value in going back and trying to apply this exotic making it look like film idea, um, and see whether it helps. I'm not I'm not convinced that it would, actually. I think he's Neil Gaiman said that he thinks that it looks um, because it's sort of been ripped and put onto YouTube and things like that. I think he says actually it looks better now than oh. it broadcast <laughs> because it's because it's been degraded, you know, uh-huh. um, by by people ripping it and, and putting it online. Oh, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think it is a major problem with it. Uh, and then and then something else that we get into quite quickly. So I think that's something that um, potentially knocks you out of the drama is just yeah. how it looks. And then I also to me I felt as if there's a weird, um, uh, there's a weird variance of acting styles going on. So Ooh. we've got Hugh Bennett as as Mr. Croup, hey. and and so he has lines like, "Now there's one rat that won't be telling any more tales." Yeah. And I felt that his performance is very different from Gary Bakewell. So Gary's the guy who plays Richard Mayhew. Forgotten? No, I haven't forgotten. It's uh, my on at seven thirty. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder now. Given that um, you're an actor and and you've done a range of things, so you've 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 been in the Neil Gaiman radio adaptation. So you've done Stardust. This is Stardust by Neil Gaiman. And then yeah. you've also done mockumentary. Yes. So how? So what's your what's your take on this? And and how do you pitch your performance when you're going into different types of stuff? In in terms of my take on the show, I felt like the acting was very variable, and and again that really took me right out of it which is one of the reasons why I was looking up Gary Bakewell, actually. Um, there were aspects of his performance that I liked, but there was something quite um, 
there was a certain level of lack of naturalism which I associate with much older television than that. Jess! Jessica! Thank God! <laughs> I think I'm going mad or something. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to think I'm absolutely awful. I know we've met before, but I've got a dreadful memory for faces. There was a, a sort of a stagey quality to them, and again, if you're going to if you're going to ask me to believe in a fantastical world, you have to make it seem completely legit and and believable. And if you and I, there was a part of me that wondered whether he'd been asked or whether he'd been taught to pronounce every single consonant really clearly. Oh, yes. It's you. Because he was Scottish. I mean, it's it's a mixture of the actor really getting a sense of, of what type of world is being created and whatever you're doing, and the director bringing together everybody and helping them to find, like, a universal level where you're all performing in the same show... Um, and and I have seen it in other things where where directors maybe maybe with the greatest of of generosity of spirit indulge people and let them just do what they feel like and what happens is you get this completely this just a complete mishmash of different styles which instantly lets everybody watching know that this is all pretend. What did you think about the relationship between Richard and? Jessica, because I, again, I, I thought for, it, it wasn't helped that from an acting perspective, I felt like the, the two actors were at a different place. But I, I just yeah. couldn't quite believe that they'd have ever got together. What did you make of them? No, absolutely. I, exactly the same. I think um, Jessica, his fiancée, is written as a bit of a one-note character anyway. Um, and the actress... I, I feel really bad criticising actors, to be honest. But I, I just felt... She she hadn't invested anything in that character to make her believe that she was a real person. She was just doing exactly what was on the page, which was being a little bit of a yuppie harpy. Richard, we haven't got time. Mrs Thanks, Stockton's right. got a bit of a thing about punctuality. Oh, Richard, I do love you. You know that, don't you? The only reason I push you is because I want you to make the best of yourself. I feel like the director has to take a lot of responsibility for that because it should have been up to him to to bring all those actors together and find a consistent style for the piece, whether that is really hyper, whether it's it's quite stagey, whether it's really overstated, whether it's really naturalistic, whatever. But they should all be in the same show, whereas they're all in different they're all in different television shows basically. And I'm just watching them all one after the other, going, I don't understand how you all know each other. I found. Richard relatively hard to warm to as well. Mm, why is that? I mean, he's he's got the right look. He's got that kind of young, slightly naive, slightly idealistic look. But I found him disingenuous, possibly. When he so when he encounters Dor and has to rescue her and lifts her up and takes her back to the flat, I just I, by that point in the time I had come to the conclusion he wasn't the kind of person that would do that. Richard uh, Oliver Mayhew, you put that young person down and come back here this minute, or this engagement is at an end as of now. I'm warning you. Shit. You might, I might have bought that had there been a chemistry between him and Dora that suggested to me that maybe he, he was instantly attracted to her or, or something along those lines. But 
because there there is obviously an intention to make door a otherworldly and b um, really in control you know the kind of person that didn't need helping and wasn't a, a damsel in distress which is all great but as a result of, of playing that angle quite hard there's absolutely no explanation for why the two of them would continue to speak to each other in the morning she would just leave there was not very much attempt to make the characters justify those story points they were just going through them on the way to wherever they were heading for next it's something else that strikes me as quite a challenge within this is the arcane language of a lot of the people from London below. So with Krupp and Vandermar, I mean, so we're looking at really some great actors. I mean, I think we can mm-hmm. agree that there's some really, there's, the, the cast's amazing. So Hill yeah. Bennett and Clive Russell play um, Krupp and Vandermar. Um, yeah. and, and so you've done, in your career, you've done a reasonable amount of, you know, what you might call kind of like genre stuff. Yeah. So how do you, so when you, when you get a script with that sort of language in it, how do you get your head into how you're going to play that part? I think realistically, you 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 just you have to you have to buy into that world as existing and and that being the way that you would naturally speak in that world because because you have a sufficient picture of the entire way that that it works and you like if you buy into it then then it's really easy you you have to believe in it when we were doing if you read Stardust for example. Um, it, there's there's lots of, of of flights of fancy and there's there's some really strange turns of phrase but fundamentally that whole world seems cohesive it, it it ties together so it's quite easy for me to believe that people would speak that way in that place. What's happening? Oh, there's a rare amount of lightning in this cloud coming up. We're trolling for lightning bolts. But if you're just doing it because it's quirky or you're just doing it because it's there and you you need to find some way of saying it then it'll never work you have to you you have to buy into it as a as part of who that person is and and you have to have a sense of that they're not embarrassed or uncomfortable or aware that what they're saying is strange it's it's exactly how they speak which to be to be totally fair i think Krupp and Vandermar actually do pretty well <laughs> All things considered, but I think they're in a different show from Richard Mayhew and Door. Yeah, yeah. There was a thing that at, um, I remember Douglas Adams saying about when he worked on Doctor Who is that he was always worried about delivering a funny script because then everybody else decides it's for laughs, and so actually yeah. it kind of destroys it. And I just yeah. wondered if there was a if there was a bit of that amongst the cast here where they thought, well, this is this is fantasy, so basically we can just turn the turn the dial up on our performance what do you think i think that's that's possibly a fair comment i mean i don't i thought patterson joseph actually even although they've given him the weirdest hairstyle he got it better old bailey what a delightfully unexpected surprise running into you here you're not wanted here to cannabis get away you're looking wonderfully healthy and is that a new hovel or have you redecorated i thought I think Howell Bennett, who is genuinely a great actor and is very charismatic, he's he's probably playing it a bit hard on the fantasy element. I think he's leaning a bit far into it. There's a sense that some people are are going to extremes because they feel like it's justified by the setting, when in fact the exact reverse is 
for me is what would work. I would want it to be as real as it could possibly be, as naturalistic as it could possibly be, because then I'll I'll believe that that world exists. Yes, and watching it again this time, there's, there's actually quite a lot of things that happen in it that kind of don't make sense. So I don't, I don't know if you spotted any of these things. So there's Vandermark cuts the phone cord, which he doesn't mm-hmm. actually cut the phone lines. There's a bit when Richard returns to his flat with the carabas and doesn't close his front door. Richard, you did it! Well, yes, my lady. And then there's also a bit, suddenly Richard discovers that people can't really see see him and he goes to his place of work, doesn't he? Uh-huh. And because he's no longer there, they're taking his desk away. Sylvia, what's going on? I'm sorry? The desk. Why did they take him a desk? <laughs> now, does that yeah. happen in a workplace? Did you spot any of those? What, what do you think of that? Yes, I spotted all of them and a lot of them, it felt to me as if it was like, we, we couldn't figure out a better way to do this, to get this exposition in. So we've gone for, um, it was really tropey, if you know what I mean. It just, there was a lot of tropes. Oh yeah, you don't work here anymore so your desk is gone. And I, I just keep coming back to this idea that you're not believing in the reality of that world if you're relying on quite cheap tactics to cover a lack of ability to express the story through dialogue. If you want to tell me that London above is real and London below is hyper-real or is very different or is fantastical, then you better make London above real. And it's not, you know, and, and so there's a part of me that's like, well, what's the difference? Where he is? Both places are weird. Yeah, the desk thing really annoyed me and, and the inconsistency <laughs> about how people were either, because it wasn't clear, it took me ages to decide whether or not people actually couldn't see him at all or could see him and hear him but just kept forgetting him because it wasn't clear. Hmm. Um, so there was a, there is a kind of subtext to this, which is the reason why people don't seem to see him or he doesn't stick in their mind. It's because to them he has become homeless. Yeah. And that's what we do in our culture with homeless people. Did you clock that when you were watching it? Not when I was watching it, not at all. Um, I don't think that was clear. Possibly that would have become apparent as time went on. Um, I think I it does, yeah. I think perhaps in later episodes it does. Yeah, but no, that wasn't clear at all. And And I think... Some of it, again, comes down to the performances of the people round about him because it's really inconsistent. You can't decide whether... it's it, the, the, the storytelling isn't good enough to make it clear that they're just choosing not to see him rather than that he's invisible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because so much else of it is this highly fantastical thing, it's, it, I'm quite happy to come into that situation and go, oh, he's, he's, he's become invisible, people can't see him. Um, mm. So with people like the the guy that's going to give his flat take out all these his belongings out of the flat oh yes that's another bit i've forgotten about that yes mrs simmons tomorrow we'll get the lads in to clear the previous tenants accoutrements you can pick up the keys from my office then that's right flat three excuse me i live here what we've established two minutes beforehand in his office is that people can see him they just forget him straight away but now this guy can't see him at all literally can't see him this is not happening it's not clear enough what's going on, um, which is, is poor storytelling. You know, and, and I don't know that you can get away with that in episode one if you're not going to explain what's happening until episode four, because I'm mm-hmm. not going to come back for episode four. Hmm. We're pretty much at the end of the episode, really, here. And then, um, so there is a cliffhanger of, of sorts. Mm-hmm. What did you make of that? Um, 
I I had kind of lost interest by that point. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I felt that the character who is threatening him, I appreciate, is supposed to be really threatening and is supposed to be this really extreme character. Again, I was a bit like, you're slightly in a Shakespeare play, mate. You know exactly what to do with them. I'm not sure that this is a show for you. Um, and I, I genuinely wasn't that concerned about what was going to happen to Richard. Because this is a high-concept drama and it's, it's gamer-esque in so much as what you're doing is you're discovering there's this whole world mm-hmm. that you didn't really know about. I sort of felt like by the end of episode one, I should be thinking, fantastic, now the setup's all done. Mm-hmm. I can really enjoy London Below from here on. But that certainly wasn't what was going through my head by the end of that episode. No, I, I was the same. I, I felt, why were we in London Below for the cliffhanger? Because that was going to be relevant to the next section of story that they wanted to get through, not because there was any reason for him to be there. And I, I feel awful for saying all of these things. I love Neil Gaiman. <laughs> and I think once this was kind of redone and redeveloped into a book and a, a radio play... It works a lot, lot, lot better than it did this first time round. So I'd, I'd stopped investing in, in pretty much all of the characters by the end of episode one. I didn't mm-hmm. really care what happened to any of them. Mm. Now, we'd, uh, I, I'd sort of postulated at the beginning of our uh, discussion about this that the fatal flaw with Neverwhere was the fact that it was shot on video but lit for film and then they didn't put a film effect in post-production. However, in talking to you about it, I think I've changed my mind, and I'm, I'm going to suggest that the fatal flaw is that it's just tonally inconsistent. The lack of consistency of tone is is a huge factor in it. Um, I think the, the, there's an old-fashioned element to the filming of it and to the performance of it that that by 1996 was was way out of date. But you know, I'm looking back at. One of my favourite shows is Robin of Sherwood, which was made in the 1980s and is wildly better at world building, at consistency of performance, at naturalism, in a really hyper, you know, real fantastical environment because every single performer, every single character believes that all that stuff is really real in their world. And 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 therefore, I think that's part of what makes Neverwhere seem a lot older than it was, because it's got a kind of a knowingness of its own unreality that just completely switched me off. So I wonder what they thought when they were recording it. And um, I suppose then, when you're recording something, mm-hmm. so it's let's say it's the first. So let's say it was the first episode of Scott Squad, for sake of argument. Welcome to Scotland, the biggest country in Northern Britain. How much of a sense do you get on set as to how good or bad or even what this thing's going to be like? With Scott Squad, I think that's probably not a good comparison because, uh-huh. well, on a lot of different levels, um, one of the core things about Scott Squad is it's it's only ever going to be what you and the person in the scene with you are doing at that time. Um, and it's you're so constantly terrified that it's not working because nobody's laughing and you're trying to do something funny but if they laugh then they cock up the take and you can't use it so you're you're in this permanent um this permanent dread that it's actually disastrously awful and then suddenly you watch it a year later and it turns out it's not as bad as you remembered because they've cut all the really awful bits 
Desk Sergeant Karen Ann deals with the punters professionally, patiently and politely. Dealing with the public can be a challenging role on occasion. Um, you know, we, we do have some frequent flyers, uh, I like to refer to them. They won't take my, my ginger bottles. I kicked the duck up the bum. Well, watch me snap out a pair of cuffs. And they've edited it together really well and they've taken out those six that were just horrendous and not funny and you weren't... Um, and, and also the other thing is it's much easier to make that world real because we don't know what we're going to say in advance. Um, Take these off. Just, just the ones that you've got. Yeah, uh -huh, that's, okay. that's fine. Been too Bobby, long. the thing is, you haven't actually put a photo of your dog or your phone number or your name on them. Oh. And that's going to make it quite difficult. Yeah, that's why I'm on it, so they can get, they know my face and they can tell me in person. My concern is that people will think it's you that's missing and that they'll keep returning you to the police station. OK. Because it's improv, isn't it? It's You're given improvised. an outline. Yeah. So yeah. Mm -hmm. because of that, you're, you are literally just reacting to what the other person said. You're not imposing a reaction on it. You're not, you know, you're not introducing a reaction to make the story move forward. You're literally just responding to whatever they said and thinking on the hoof. Mm -hmm. Have you been filming something and you're thinking, oh, I've just got no idea how this is going to turn out? Yes, always. Um, because mm. there's so many other elements mm. to it. it, it you know, mm -hmm. um, some of it can be... Some of it can be really basic stuff. Like, you're sort of looking around the set going, this doesn't look... Like, this doesn't look real. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. if it's lit the right way and it's shot the right way, you can you can get away with murder. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's... Sometimes it can be that. Sometimes you can't picture how it's going to look on screen because what you're seeing mm -hmm. is not what the audience is going to see. Um, I imagine it must be like that. If you ever work with green screen, for example, it, it must be very... Challenging. I mean, I've done some advert auditions where you're supposed to be imagining. I remember doing one where I was supposed to be on a ferry. Oh no, I was I was in a car, and I was a wee bit fed up. I was a wee bit annoyed, and at a certain moment, I was to think of myself on a ferry, and suddenly I would feel better, and I felt like such. And, and I was to give a wee smile, and that would let the audience yeah. know that I was now on this ferry going to somewhere for my holidays, and I genuinely felt like such a tool, and I was like, it's, it, it is really difficult. To, to just respond to things that you're not seeing and that you can't imagine. And, and so that's it's a challenge as an actor to, to to convince yourself enough of it that you can do it like it's real. Let's say you're in the cast of Neverwhere and you've gone for a read-through and the director or Neil Gaiman's there and they say, right, this is what we're, we're trying to do. What, what do you think that would have been? I... What do I think it would have been? See, to me, I would have wanted London to be really believable and really true. And the thing is, London is a little bit glamorous. Even when it's grubby, it's a little bit glamorous. So I would have wanted it to look slightly glamorous, but to be real. So, and unfortunately, homelessness is a really core part of London. You know, homelessness is, is definitely there all the time, but at the same, but it's in amongst this slightly glamorous slightly heightened world which London actually is in real life and I therefore would have wanted that to be more believable and more real and then I would have wanted London below to also be a real place that really worked and really existed and wasn't just a series of tableaus I would want I would want to make that 
an entire believable world just the way that the real London is. So I don't have to see every street in London to believe that it's a place. And I don't have to see every location in London below, but I have to believe that it's it's a functioning world and society and that there's stuff going on off camera. Um, and I feel that in that initial read-through, I would have wanted everybody to, to buy into that world just as much as into the London that they would, they'd all come through to get there that day. Now, I think you... Yeah, I think you probably answered this question already, but just to get you on the record here. So you hadn't seen Neverwhere before. I sent you episode one. Yep. Will you be watching any more of it? No, I am not going to watch any more of Neverwhere, I'm afraid. But what I am going to do is I'm going to go and listen to um, the audio version of it <laughs> um, with James McAvoy. And, um, and I'm probably going to go and get the book because I do want to know about the world i just don't want to watch the television version of it because it's not doing it for me at all so how did neverwhere episode one fit into your day um it, it slightly depressed me because i so wanted to enjoy it and I and I really wanted to love it because Laura Fraser was in it as well, and and I think she's a she I mean she's a stunning looking girl, she's a really 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 good actress, um and and I and I wanted to like it just for her. Never mind anybody else in it. Never even mind Neil Gaiman who I think is amazing. I, I I wanted to like it because she was in it and I didn't and I, I was quite disappointed. <laughs> Uh, I'm not watching it. I can tell you there's two things of note that you're going to miss. Okay. Out. So Peter, Cap Peter Capaldi turns up later on, and he's okay. Fair enough. You really claim to be an angel. I mean, you've actually met God and everything. I claim nothing, Richard. But I am an angel. You honour us. No. You do me much honour by coming here. But also, I don't know if you remember this, there's a brief moment where Richard is asleep and there's like a couple, a sort of a flash frame thing of him, f of there being some kind of animal. <laughs> Bad dream. Um... And actually, that turns up in the last episode, and it's a bull, and it's extremely underwhelming. And I, I, my memory of that is sitting there with my friends watching it, and that was the point where they all just started laughing. So, so there you go. So, mm. so I've told you what you need to know about the TV version, so you actually don't need to watch any more of it. I, and I'm hugely grateful to you for putting me in a position where I don't have to. <laughs> You're very welcome. So how are you finding life in lockdown? I, I suppose it's not as different for me as it is for a lot of other people because I spent a lot of time at home anyway. <laughs> Because I was unemployed a lot of the time because I'm an actor, so you spend a lot of time in the house. Um, I have been, I haven't actually been binge watching television the way that a lot of other people have. I, I've tended to stick with just whatever's on scheduled TV and just flicking through the channels. Um, I've, I've watched a couple of things, but, but I've not been, I've been more guilty of spending far too much time on social media. I, I feel very comfortable at home. I'm I'm in a really I know how privileged I am and lucky I am. 
I live in a nice house. We've got plenty of room so that we're not living on top of each other all the time. We've got a garden. Um, and, uh, you know, for all of those reasons, I'm in, a, I'm in a very lucky situation compared to a lot of other people. Um, and, I, and I'm very grateful for it. And I try to remind myself to be grateful of it for it like whenever I wake up in the morning um, I do I find myself sort of lurching from one end of the emotional spectrum to the other from time to time just because because um, I think everybody does and there are some days where, where I really miss I really miss just learning lines and working and spending time with people um, but I've I've not I've not found it anything like as hard as a lot of other people have and touch wood, you know, so far all my family have made it through unscathed. Um Good. which again I feel hugely lucky about. Unfortunately, a number of my friends have lost relatives um mm-hmm. with coronavirus, which is it's heartbreaking and haven't been able to go to funerals and haven't been able to mourn the way that they wanted to and some people have really struggled financially as well, you know, so I feel exceptionally lucky that I've got away with such a light effect on my life compared to, like, I know the majority of people have had it, in fact, the vast, vast majority of people have had it a lot worse than we have. So I'm very lucky. Thank you, Karen, for watching Neverwhere, and thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Stay indoors.